This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. It might not be every young man's dream, but it's a pretty popular one. If you like to hunt, the dream is to get a job that pays you to go hunting. I know I had that dream as a young man, and I realized it. And I bumped into a younger man who's pretty much done the same thing, ladies and gentlemen. Today's podcast is going to be all about how to become a successful hunter and get paid to do it. Stay tuned. Ron Spomer Outdoors podcast is underway. Hey, everybody, as promised, here is a man who has found out a way to get paid to go hunting. I don't know if he's getting rich, but he probably could or should because what he produces is really top quality. This is one of the best young writers working in America today, in my estimation, and I've seen a lot of them come and go. And this guy is really cutting a swath, and he's a hard worker and a straight shooter. And I am proud to have him on the show. Joseph Von Benedict, welcome to Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. Well, thank you, Ron. I highly suspect I don't deserve those accolades, but I'll take them. Thank you. you. better. Yeah. And also, thanks for calling me young. That's something my wife doesn't do anymore. (laughs) I know what it's like. We got to help each other out. (laughs) We can continue to dream, right? Yeah. Yeah. And your dreaming has probably worked out pretty well for you with your career. Now, you are a writer as well as an editor. Is that true? Yeah, and uh, a podcaster as well. Got a pretty so, successful podcasting channel, do you? Well, I um, it's growing. Yeah. It's becoming successful enough that it's uh, yeah, it's it's my baby, and it's starting to uh, really gain enough traction that it's eating into my writing time a little bit. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or not. I'm hoping it is. Yeah. Yeah. When did you? What's it called? The Backcountry Hunting Podcast. Backcountry. I like mm-hmm. that. Backcountry Hunting Podcast with Joseph Von Benedict. That's that. right. Yep. Yeah. And our, our focus is to inspire, educate, and entertain. Mm-hmm. And we talk a lot about ballistics, um, cartridges, rifles, high-performance gear ranging from boots to backpacks. Mm-hmm. And really just trying to emphasize the, emphasize the joys of getting into the backcountry. Yeah. And 
hunting there. Yeah. yeah. Well, see, folks, you can see why I've got this guy on my podcast because we kind of think alike in those regards. <laughs> uh, there's something about the back country. I don't know, Joseph, if this worked for you, but when you were a kid, were you just enthralled with the whole idea of getting back into no man's land where no one has been before? Absolutely. Yeah. I used to wander the the high country of Southern Utah. Now, most of Southern Utah is desert country, uh -huh. right? But there are high country mesas down there that are 7,500 feet in elevation and it's mm -hmm. sagebrush and juniper trees and very rarely a big deer, uh -huh. right? And uh -huh. I loved hunting that country, but Spent a lot of time at high altitude as well. The plateau that I grew up under was, uh, well, the highest point on it was, if I remember correctly, just over 13,000 feet. Whoa. And it's a plateau. Most of it was a, just over 11,000 feet. Huh? And it was high enough to take your breath away when you climb up there, even as a 20-year-old. Now, southern Utah is getting pretty far south. Was it high enough that you had fir trees and quakies? Higher. In some cases, oh, yeah. There was yeah. some of it where the quakies started getting pretty sparse. We had a, oh, wow. a heavy belt of quakies from about oh, 8,000 feet up to about 9,500 feet. Mm -hmm. And then they kind of thinned as it climbed that last escarpment up to the top of the plateau. So there were some up there, but not a lot. How isolated was it? Pretty isolated. The town I grew up in, when I was there, we had 90 residents. And I was 100 miles from a stoplight or a supermarket. Okay. Yeah, it was perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so did you take horses back up or were you backpacking? Yes, a little of both, All right. but generally horses. All horses right. are an elk hunter's best friend. Now, I want to take this conversation to the backpacking part of it because most folks can't manage horses. Right. You don't have the room. You don't have the time. It's the expense, everything else. But we can get a pair of boots and a backpack. And most right. of us can afford that. And that's how I got started. Um, so let's talk about the backpack hunts and why you like them so much. What advantages you think they have? When I started backpacking, it was kind of an interesting deal because I thought horses were the only way to carry gear into the backcountry. Right. Right. I was in my early twenties by then and a friend invited me to go on to one of these high desert hunts. Mm -hmm. And we, in fact, we were just scouting. We went in for three nights, four days. And he had to loan me a backpack because I didn't have you a didn't backpack. Have one. I had a day pack for okay. hunting, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I came out of there thinking I'm carrying a lot more weight than usual, but also, holy smokes, the simplicity is beautiful. You don't have to worry about hobbling horses out, yep. making sure they're getting enough feed. You don't have to take them to water every time. Yep. You don't have to be concerned about your friends that aren't capable horsemen enough to stay out of danger. Mm -hmm. because horses can turn dangerous very quickly. And I've experienced that firsthand, mm -hmm. but uh, I ordered a backpack that week <laughs> because I loved the simplicity of it. I realized I was working harder. My striking distance was limited, but my nomadic ability was greatly enhanced because I wasn't tied to a camp sufficient for horses. Yeah. Yeah. You can go places with horses that, will wear you out when you've got a backpack on. But with a backpack, you can go where the horses can't go because they are feeding somewhere and you don't have time to take care of them. That's right. And, geez, I mean, I was young enough and poor enough that I used a lot of different horses that, you know, some of them shouldn't have been in the backcountry <laughs> with youngsters that yeah. were, you know, they believed they could do anything. A good horse is a beautiful thing. A bad horse is the devil itself. <laughs> Would you ever get hurt with them? <laughs> 
Oh, I've been hurt on quite a few horses. Yeah, I've got a, a couple of compressed discs in my lower back as a result of coming off of. I was actually doing gun training on a young mare that I I had broke, and I thought she was further along than she was. Oh my god! <laughs> the gun went off, and so did you. I'll bet. Well, no, I actually pulled it out of the scabbard under my saddle. Yeah, and went to rest it across my saddle bows, like you would if you're ready for a yep. shot. Right? I was out in my dad's hayfield. <laughs> And I think that stock, it was kind of a glossy stock. I think it must have caught the sun and reflected oh, in her eye. And horses are always ready for to run from something, right? Mm-hmm. And she jumped hard, and, and I didn't come off that jump. And then she went to bucking real hard because I didn't want to drop my nice rifle. <laughs> <laughs> and about, oh, eight or ten jumps in, she hit particularly hard and her kicked particularly hard. And I somersaulted. And landed like wow. that with all my weight coming right down into my shoulders, and it compressed Ouch. a couple of discs. I didn't know it till I was changing sprinklers later, uh-huh. and it spasmed and hit me. But yeah, interesting yeah. times. I've fallen down a couple of mountains with horses too. Rolling? Yeah. Really? How far did you go? <sighs> you want the full story? I don't know how much time does it take. <laughs> I'll give you the abbreviated one. Going into camp in Oregon for an elk camp with uh, traditional archery equipment. All right. was with my brother and Ron King, who owned Fox Archery. And we got a late start. So we were starting in the twilight. And mm. I had a, a young mare. She was a pretty good mare, but still not real well broke. And just had her piled with gear. We were going to get into camp and then we were done with the horses. So I didn't want to take more horses than we needed. Sure. So she was a little froggy and I didn't want to get on right off the bat. Froggy, froggy. Wait a minute. What's a froggy horse? Does it have any hair? Is it naked? What's the deal? A froggy horse is one that isn't quite sure it wants to be ridden at that particular moment. Okay. So I untied her from the horse trailer where she'd been standing while I loaded about three horses worth of gear on her. I had duffels across the front duffels across the back so i decided yeah. i was going to lead her for about a quarter mile she's a little hump humpy like yep. they hump their back up and they walk stiff and they look at you like don't even think about it okay quarter mile up the road she was relaxed working good snug the cinch up handed the lead rope to my brother just in case and stepped on now the important thing to know is we were on an old logging road and on the right side, it went up. It was a cut. Mm-hmm. Somebody cut in there with a bulldozer gotcha. decades before. The left side dropped off more than 100 feet, almost vertically. Ooh. There are a few deadfalls, and then there's a creek roaring in the bottom and pines down in the bottom. Yikes. So she was fine as I stepped onto her. I lifted the reins, neck reins, right? She's a cow pony laid the rein against the right side of her neck because I'd faced her into that mountain so that she wouldn't try and jump on me. She was okay, still pretty young. Was smart. Yep. Well, I wanted to turn her up the trail, and she launched backward. What? Not one of these big rear things where you're thinking, I wonder if I should bail. I probably, I probably should bail. I'm going to bail, and you bail, right? <laughs> a lot of times a bad horse will rear like that, and they kind of quiver, and if they're going to go over, it gives you a signal. This time it was like a catapult. Just went. Yeah, my wow. brother said it happened so fast. He was he was relaxed, holding the lead rope, looking up the trail, and suddenly the lead rope went out of his hand. <laughs> he looked around, and I was gone oh. <laughs> off the mountain. Okay, yikes! So I felt her launch, and I kid you not, 
I mean, brain goes into immediate hyperdrive, right? Analyzing everything that's going on around you. I saw stars through my horse's ears. And I looked over my shoulder and I saw the tips of very large pine trees below me. Mm. We fell for, I think it was 30 or 40 feet. You stayed on that whole ride? Well, um, no. <laughs> Can you remember she anything after that? on her butt facing away from the mountain and somehow... I still say angels pulled me off that horse because I lit beside her like Spider-Man on that slope. And I remember clawing, like slowing myself down on that talus and rocky slope and whatever. I hung up against a bush or something, and I looked down and I watched my horse. It was so steep, she never turned and slid sideways, which is what horses will usually do on a steep slope. Mm -hmm. She hit on her butt and her head, her butt and her head, all the way to the bottom. She went to the bottom. That was dead silence. I was pretty sure she was dead. Well, I clawed my way back up to that old logging road, and, and I was pretty wigged out there for a few minutes. Just like, yeah, I think I almost died right there. Anyway, we um, we hiked down there, scaled down there. We didn't have to repel, but I felt like we should be, and found my horse. She's still alive. I just yeah. went for my saddle and bridle and all the other gear. <laughs> I'm really blessed to have gotten off that horse because there was so much gear on there that I was kind of locked in. Mm. So we got her up. She didn't have anything broken. Yeah. She had hair missing all over her butt yeah. and all over her head and neck. Yeah. I felt pretty bad for her. She was pregnant even. We tied four lariats together and barely reached her. So that tells you she was well over 100 feet down. They're 30 foot lariats mm. and managed to get her started up there. And I was at the top sucking rope we had dialed around the only tree in the neighborhood. It was like a six-inch pine. And she would lunge several steps, and I'd pull it up, and then she'd lose her balance, and she'd start going over backward. And that rope would go like a guitar yeah. string. It was getting – I thought it was getting as thin as a pencil, right? Now, this is a three-eighths-inch rope, so it was stretching some. Anyway, she finally came lunging over the top, stood there quivering, and we went hunting. Did you ride her again? I never rode her again. Yeah, smart man. Horse that nearly kills me once, I'm yeah. done with. We packed her that trip, and then she had her colt. She kept that colt. No problems. No wow. injuries even. She was stiff like yeah. me. Yeah, it's amazing what horses can survive. Yeah. I had a friend with a similar situation. He was in Idaho on a trip with an outfitter, and there was a washout in one of those trails with a cliff on one side and, yeah. and, a, and a rise on the other, and it was, eh, I don't know about this. And the guy says, well, let me get the horses across and see how well they do. And then you can come across or something. And he got across with his. And when it take, it was time to get the saddle horse that Frank was riding across, it went over, like you said, and down, 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 mm -hmm. down, down. And here's the same thing. Horse was fine. Fortunately, he was off and all the gear got scattered and everything. But he had taken his gun and his fly rods and stuff off. Thank goodness. Smart man. Yeah. But he said he had to spend the, the night on the mountain alone because it was so far down to that horse that when the outfitter got down to it and yelled up to him that she was okay, it was dark. So really? He stay up there Just stayed himself, up there. Which kind of takes us back to backpacking and being prepared. Yeah. Even if you're on a horse, you get stranded out there. You better have some basics for survival, mm -hmm. especially a way to light a fire. Sure. So before we get into the backpacking, though, just because you had the luxury of telling your horse story, I got to tell mine. 
Please do. <laughs> so all we're doing is coming back to camp, leading uh, the pack horse with moose on it. The antlers are packed on top of the pan. Your story's already better than mine. <laughs> There's a moose involved, <laughs> well, right? And he's dead. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we're fixing to eat him. So we're going back to camp pretty happy, and I'm leading this big Percheron-sized horse. I mean, they had hooves on them like dinner plates. I'm riding one, and I'm leading the other one, which was so wide that nobody could sit on it unless you were an athletic, uh, you know, gymnast doing the splits or something yeah. some kind of a gymnast no way was i getting on that thing but, but i was leading him and he was carrying the bulk of the weight and things had gotten going pretty nicely and the, but i remember the the outfitter guide said don't put that loop across the saddle horn yeah. the horse goes crazy you want to be able to turn it loose so i had it in my hand and i can't remember if it was over or under my leg but i started feeling this extra pressure on my leg where the rope was going across it and about the time I decide I'm going to turn back to see what's going on with that horse, it's running up along the other side of me on the right side. <laughs> and I like a split second where my brain is thinking, wait a minute, wasn't that horse behind me on the left side? It looks just like it. It's the same horse. Well, now he's pulling the rope around yeah. my back, and he gets even with my horse and pulls the saddle and everything underneath my horse. Oof. So now I'm riding under the horse and seeing all these giant dinner plate hooves beating down on my head and i figured that's it i'm out of here you're kind of strapped in <laughs> see you around betsy it's rope. been nice knowing you i knew my <laughs> wife was going to be really messed mad at me because i was dead i knew that and i sort of asked for forgiveness just before that hoof hit me but just before it did something broke loose and i got out of it i don't mm -hmm. know even know how everything is so foggy but I remember hurting quite a bit in my back and you're talking about the back stuff so that's where my horse injury kicks up yeah it's in my upper back though i've got a good friend tice erickson he runs utah bird dog training very very good with animals and he uh has a whole string of llamas that he's hunted with for years don't tell me you've got to buck me off a llama story uh, no <laughs> I, but i'm so i grew up llamas were hippie animals in southern utah that's what all the oh the hippies sure yeah and they they do their trail trips yeah, and yeah. all that Backpacking and i used to think the llama do the work what a travesty <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I've learned some things about llamas. Yeah. They're camelid family critters, right. right? So they don't have to drink, but every four or five days. Yeah. So you can take them into desert country or into high alpine country where there isn't much water. Mm. You can make them carry enough water for you and they don't have to drink. And you can take them up to a, a four foot vertical bank with jump. a 70 pound load on it. And they just whoop wow. and keep on going. Now you can't nice. ride them. You can't put a whole elk on one. But apparently they're pretty good way to go. And and as I am back to you calling me young, I'm going to confess I'm bona fide middle age at this point. I'm starting to feel the high country like I didn't used to. Yeah. And I'm wondering if maybe a llama or three yeah. could be in my future. That's not a bad option. I thought about it, toyed with it over the years, but never obviously tackled it because we're going to get back to backpacking now. Sure. And that's what most folks are going to be able to do. If you're dreaming of a high country hunt, you want to get away from the crowds, get your legs in shape and get some good boots because that's probably the route you're going to have to take. So let's go to, first of all, let's discuss the potential for reaching backcountry. How far can you go on a legitimately on a backpack hunt? Considering you want to shoot an animal and bring him home. So how far back are you going to go? Well, it depends on a few factors. Uh, of course, personal fitness is yep. a big one how many friends you have and how willing they are <laughs> to put their hunt on hold while they help you pack is yeah. another one. Yep. If you go in with four pals and you say, all right, we're going 
10 miles into elk country. That's a long, long way. Yep. But you say, look, if we get one good bull between the four of us, we're happy. And if we get two, we're done. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. You can do that. You can go into the 10 miles or so. If you're all in reasonably good shape, you can shoot a bull and either two of you start packing or all of you pack. If you bone him off, you can just about take a whole elk out in one trip with four guys, four guys right. even over a lot of country. If you're going a long way, as long as it's not technical terrain. Yep. Right. And then you have to probably go back in if you want the Cape and to bring the rack out. If it's a big bull fifth trip. Yeah. But if you got four of you and you're all willing to travel, bone off your meat, get it ready to go and spend a day at it. You're going to cover 20 miles. Going out loaded, come back in light with some fresh candy bars. Yep. And go back to hunting. So if you got a week or 10 days, that's an option. But if your physical fitness is lower, you might have to learn to hunt between road systems mm-hmm. and start high and do one or two day packs downhill and pop out on a different road where you've got a pickup or range or something like that. And, you know, I had another friend that was, he's a couple years older than me too, and he said, when you talk about backcountry hunting, don't discount the one-day trip because a lot of good animals are shot on a one-day trip, or a, I call them a bonsai overnight trip. Yeah, right? You can do that solo. You can bomb way in there, loaded real light, but with a good pack. So you can bring a half of a deer or an elk quarter out with you. And if you shoot something, whether you do or not, you're coming out the next day. Right. You shoot something, bring what you can, go back in with friends. So you don't need to bring a stove. Right. If you watch your weather, you might not even need to bring a tent. Yep. Just you could even bivy out and not even wear bring your sleeping bag, although that gets really uncomfortable. You got to be tough to do that, <laughs> right? Yep. But yeah, you're you're welcome to do it that way. Um, that is the logistics that they definitely don't consider in the romantic side of this stuff. Like when I got started, yes. it was like, oh, it's so easy. Your, your house is on your back, so you can go wherever you want. Wait a minute, what about water? What about enough food? And then what? about that elk when you shoot him you've got to get him out now and there's another big factor in that and that's your season if you're a bow hunter you don't have a lot of time because it's going to be hot during the middle of the day if you're in there in october you're prime because you're not likely to have life-threatening weather yet your meat will probably stay good for several days if you're in in november you got to be real aware if there's a big snowstorm coming you don't want to get trapped in there yeah when i was doing it um i did it bow hunting didn't get the elk, but got everything primed. Came back in a few days when the rifle season opened, half yep. a week or whenever it mm-hmm. was, and I knew where I needed to be and when and how I was going to go about it. Shot that elk. It took me five. I was solo, so it took me five trips to get him out. Sure. And but it was a similar thing to what you were talking about off the road, not going really deep into the wilderness. That what I've discovered about the roads is that your road hunters will go in a hundred, two hundred yards, and then they start to get nervous and then back out again. It's yeah. Old, you got to pack a frying pan if you shoot one back in there. You have to eat him on the spot because you'll never get him out. <laughs> Heard that once or twice. Yeah. So all you have to do is get past that. And then you've got this gap before the uh, backcountry guide and outfitter folks mm-hmm. are working the ground. There's that little narrow strip in there. And if you can identify that, that's where you can get those quick little in and out backpack trips done. Yeah. You have to identify the strip and then you have to identify country that will hold elk or yes. deer or whatnot. Yes. I've hunted some of those strips that were 
devoid of animal life. <laughs> You've been there too. Huh? <laughs> I think I saw your footsteps in there. <laughs> Could have been. <laughs> so there's another a couple more elements to this. As you age, generally you you start becoming a little more capable of buying good equipment. Yeah. My early equipment, I bought a good, really good backpack, thankfully. But I hunted in army surplus camo yes. in my farm red wing boots for years <laughs> because it's all I had. Yeah, I, right? hear you, I hear you. And I had no nice cooking equipment, anything like that. I have, I shouldn't admit this, in my teens, I have backpacked a tiny cast iron stove, uh, pan because I could stick it in the fire and burn meat with it yeah. or food or whatever. Thankfully, I eventually became acquainted with backpacking stoves. <laughs> yeah, a little bit lighter. So as you learn more about the backcountry and you become a little bit more um, financially solvent, shall we say, mm -hmm. you can get better equipment. I found that actually has helped me compensate for my uh, reduced capability yeah. in my middle-aged years to cover a lot of country and carry a lot of weight. So would you, would you shave 10 pounds off your gear? More. More than that? With really cutting-edge equipment, titanium and yeah. space-age fabrics, and importantly, a rifle that weighs five pounds less than some of the guns we used to hunt with, you can shave weight pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. I used to carry, for a four- or five-day hunt, I'd be carrying 70 pounds sometimes. Now I can do that 35 pounds. Yeah. And even if I'm going for, well, good example, I'm going for a drop camp DIY moose hunt in Alaska in September. And you get 50 pounds. That's it. Plus your right. rifle. Right. For the, cause of the plane the, flying the, you in. The super cub can only yeah. handle that much. So you get, you have to really focus to whittle your gear down to 55 pounds. <laughs> That's all your gear, all your food. I hear you. Emergency gear, cooking gear. Better done that. Yeah. Yeah, should I take the knife or should I just gnaw my way through that hide? <laughs> Is there obsidian in the area? <laughs> So the backpack is getting down to 35, 40 pounds. That's good for a week. Mm. You stay alive for a week with it? If I had to, I'm more comfortable for three or four days. Yeah. So one thing I've noticed about the pack is obviously you've got your basics that you have to have, whether you're out there only a day or six days, you've still got your tent, your stove, your sleeping bag, your pad, some of the basics, unless you want to really rough it. Yeah. So your, your weight's going to be similar. Um, and then you get down to that rifle and that's where you can really save some weight. And a lot of people will laugh at me and say, oh, what? if you're not man enough to carry an eight pound rifle or a 10 pound rifle. I mean, I've got friends around here I'm who are talking. Yeah. Huh? I'm not anymore. Well, exactly. Because <laughs> I don't you know? have to. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. It's like, okay, you want to be strong or you want to be smart? Yeah. You can be both, but generally there's one or the other. <laughs> I have friends around here who think elk hunting in the mountains needs a lightweight rifle. So they use an 11 pounder. With a 28-inch barrel. That is that is not a light rifle. No. No. So, you know what a, a light rifle is. Let's tell everybody what a backpacker's rifle is going to weigh. Okay. So, just a little background. I grew up hunting first with a, a 1903 Springfield sporterized rifle. And I think without a scope, it ranges about nine and a half pounds. Sounds with a scope, right. it's 11. Yeah. Okay. There then you. I went to a Winchester Model 70, classic Jack O'Connor rifle, in 270. Scope that weighs about nine pounds. You didn't Big go improvement, really. <laughs> yeah. That's like nearly 20%. These days, if I'm hunting mountain terrain, particularly technical mountain terrain, yeah. I want a rifle that bear weighs no more than six and a half pounds. Oh, you go that heavy. 
if I have to. I said, no more, right? <laughs> okay. So there are some trade-offs. The lighter your rifle becomes, the more difficult it is to shoot accurately. For us humans, that doesn't mean that a five-pound rifle can't shoot extremely well. It just means that it's harder for us. The lighter the weight, the less inherent mass there is to dampen and basically cover up our human errors as shooters. Twitchy, twitchy. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know about you, but even, you know, I can shoot really consistently from the bench. I can even do pretty well in shooting competitions, which I've done since I was 14. But you put me in steep mountainous terrain on loose ground with a giant critter downrange, and it's been eight hours since I had a meal, and my heart rate's through the roof because... There you go. Yeah, surfing waves of adrenaline. That five-pound rifle is not as easy to shoot well. So work on your fundamentals if you want one of these rifles. Yeah. So the way you can create one of these is order a custom rifle or buy what I consider a semi-custom rifle, but a very high-end premium rifle, something like from, well, our old friend Lex Webernick has yeah. built a lot of very nice ultralight rifles. He has. Proof Research has their Glacier TI rifle, which is guaranteed to shoot half-inch groups at 100 yards. If you're the shooter enough to do it and you use the right ammo, right? Five-pounder? I think they're more like 5.4. Okay. Depending, of course, on cartridge, if you have a long action, short action, yep. or whatnot. And then, well, there's a new Idaho company, Altera Arms. I think you're familiar with them. Yes, they indeed. offer a fantastic accuracy and reliability guarantee. Incredible accuracy. Yes. And light. And they're very light. Yeah. The lightest ones I have personally that are in my own gun safe, they're both 280 Ackley improved because I'm a huge fan of that cartridge. One is a Kimber Mountain Ascent. Okay. It's a controlled feed stainless gun with a carbon fiber stock. And with a Swarovski 3.5 to 18 power. Scope on it, Z5. Mm -hmm. It weighs exactly six and a half pounds. Yep. Ready to go up the mountain. That's awesome. There's one I have that's even lighter. It's a Weatherby Mark V Backcountry 2.0. That is amazing how light they made that right. Yes. So this one has the steel action, not their uh, titanium action. The titanium version is actually less than five pounds. It's 4.9 pounds, I think. Yep. This one's set up with a Leupold VX3 in, uh, what is it, three and a half to 10, and it weighs six and a quarter pounds. Mm -hmm. That's darn light. And you right. can carry that for a long time in the backcountry. Yeah, it really makes a difference in so many people who haven't done it, just don't quite understand it because it's yeah. like, well, what, what kind of a man are you? You can't carry eight pound rifle, big deal. You can go a lot further and last a lot longer. I think that's the point that they're missing. Yeah. yeah. You can lug that rifle up the mountain, but then after a couple, three days, you start wearing down. You're not eating the best food. You're getting a lot of it. Not sleeping well. Things, yeah, yeah. All those things add up. And then it's suddenly, oh, I know I could go over that last mountain ridge, but it's not so tired. I don't think I'll do it. Whereas if you were carrying a smaller, lighter rifle all that time, you might have enough reserve energy to make that extra hump. And in my case, it got me my first big doll ram. Did it? It was a like, we're at the end of our ropes. We ought to just make camp right here. I thought, let's just go over that last little mountain there and do that. That'll open up some new country. And we were really pushing it, but there he was. And we ended up sleeping on that side of the mountain beside the dead sheep. Fantastic. Yeah. And what rifle were you carrying? That weighed six pounds, uh, field ready, except for the cartridges that weren't in it yet. But with the sling on it, a light sling, 
the uh, VX, it would have been the two to seven mm-hmm. by 33 compact loophole. Sure. Use that a lot on my mountain rifles. Great scope. Yep. And that thing came in at six pounds and it was a 284 Winchester cartridge mm-hmm. in Melvin Forbes ultralight arms model. Very 20. nice. Oh, what a sweet rifle. I took a lot of backcountry game with that thing. Sure. So my standard has always been to be able to hit right at around six pounds, ready to go. Feel mm-hmm. right. That's with your scope on lightweight rings. I always go with the aluminum tallies. One yep. piece. That's my favorite go-to. Yep. Ounce as and well. a half per per mount. And that's the base and the ring in one unit. So you've got fewer screws, fewer things to break yep. or unscrew. <laughs> Less moving parts. Yep. Fewer yep. moving parts are always good. <laughs> Yeah, you've got to think rugged and durable. You know, you want uh, weatherproof stuff in the backcountry. You don't need rust. Uh, been there, done that. But anything yeah. you can avoid along those lines. But your point earlier about the accuracy was really spot on. Those rifles are amazingly accurate for at least a few shots. You know, some mm-hmm. of them have some fairly thin barrels. And you heat yeah. those up and your your accuracy can start to suffer. But the idea is not to shoot eight times at an animal. It's to get them right. on the first shot. Yep. And I have friends that will tell me... I just don't think I can shoot a six and a half pound rifle accurately enough. You know, when I'm that excited and I get up to that ridge and across the canyon, there's this giant mm-hmm. alpine mule deer or whatever the case may be. My counter to that argument is that's on you. You can learn that. But I'll tell you this if you can't get to the ridge, you'll never have the shot opportunity. Yeah. So carry gear that will allow you to get to the ridge and then take the responsibility of learning to use it accurately. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, folks listening may think, well, it's only four pounds to go from a 10-pound rifle that you can shoot like a bench rest gun down to a six-pounder. What's the big... You're only saving four pounds. It's only four pounds. But, <laughs> but remember, that rifle is... I think of it as the weight on the end of the fulcrum or the lever, right? It's always in your hand if you're expecting a shot. You're using it for balance, whatever the case may be, carrying it over your shoulder, on your shoulder. It's significant weight. Those four pounds wear on you more there than they would if they're in your backpack, mm-hmm. which is why a lot of the the guys that tag, tackle the technical terrain in backcountry are now strapping their rifles to their pack as they go up. Yeah. I've been sticking my rifle in the pack, in the side. Either there's a side pouch or the mm-hmm. strap's coming around, and I just strap the rifle on there, and I can reach back and pull it. If I do it right, I can reach back and pull it off in a hurry. That's a no. Braveheart move, right? You learned that from Mel Gibson? <laughs> no, he got it from me. Ah. <laughs> I'm older. <laughs> I hope you get royalties on that. <laughs> Darn it, I knew I screwed up. <laughs> hey, Mel, you owe me. <laughs> no, that's that's perfect, and it, and it works so beautifully. Um and it really is amazing that that equipment allows you to get back into some God's country. Yeah. It's, it's the sort of things we dreamed about as kids. But the other thing we dreamed about, of course, was making a living doing this. And that's where we get back to the introduction here is that I promised them I was, we were going to tell them, how can you hunt for a living? They're going to pay you to hunt. It's easier to talk, just tell hunting stories and talk about our favorite rifles. Well, that's too easy. Now we got to get to work. So how do you make a buck out of this? How is it that you're able to go hunting and have all these incredible adventures and get paid for it? It's a challenge. <laughs> I'm sure it was a challenge when you got started. It was a challenge when I got started. And I think you have to have a few inherent characteristics. You have to be able to, I don't like the word creating content. It's a bit too modern for me, but you have to be able to create valuable content, whether that's audio or mm-hmm. video or writing or whatever the case may be, photography. 
Yeah. Right. And when I was working full-time in-house as an editor, I was the editor-in-chief of Shooting Times Magazine for uh -huh. several years. There were three characteristics I wanted in my writers. Every writer had to have at least two. And the writer that had all three was the holy grail of writers, right? Mm -hmm. That's literary capability. Very few gun writers actually can write with any kind of verbal artistry. <laughs> I'm not blowing sunshine up your skirts, Ron, when I say you're one of them. And I try and emulate you sometimes. Another is photography. Okay. If you can produce really good images, editors will love you. Good writing, good images. And then the one that you cannot go without is authenticity and authority. Bingo. You have to be authoritative on your subject because no matter how good a story you can tell and how good your photos are to support it. If you don't know what the heck you're talking about, nobody's going to buy it literally or figuratively. Right? So if you can find uh, an individual that wants to be in outdoor journalism, and I'm including audio and video in that now, because sure. it's a thing our world yeah. is evolving. If you can provide good content in all those facets, you have the authority on the subject about which you speak. You have the ability to take good photos and or video, and you can write about it well. Because even as a video guy or a podcaster, I mean, I still have to write introductions yeah. to each episode. And, and the, how compelling those introductions are actually makes a difference on whether or not people listen to them. So here's the thing, though. It's a very small market. Even when I got into it, uh, coming up on, well, I went full-time 15 years ago mm -hmm. and I'd been writing part-time through college. And even before that, my mom tells me I tried to turn every school assignment into a writing assignment. <laughs> I had handwritten in cursive a book when I was 17. All right. It's still never published. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I studied fiction writing, right? I studied creative writing and I thought I was going to be a novelist. But what published in college was the hunting stories I sent yeah. to various magazines. And yeah. so I was kind of led that way. And in the end, uh, you know, it, it turned out well. And what was it? Like two months after my wife finished her degree, I got an offer from Peterson Publishing in California. I always sworn that I'd never moved to New York City or Los Angeles. We moved to Los Angeles. It was as a foot into the open door. I got okay. hired as an associate editor. Yep. And if you are lucky enough, fortunate enough to ever get an opportunity like that, then it's on you to prove your merit, whether or not mm -hmm. you have what it takes. But it's brutal, uh, especially when you go freelance, right? Like you and I have been living for many, many years. There's no benefits. If you plan for retirement, you're smarter than the average gun rider. Yeah. <laughs> right. If you're not living deadline to deadline and paycheck to paycheck, you're doing pretty well. Yeah. The, the old editor, Jerry Lee, was a prince of a man. He's passed away now, but he's the one that hired me out of L.A. He and Scott Rupp, who I still work for now. And Jerry looked at me under his eyebrows when he was doing my final interview and said, you know, if you went and wrote for a shoe magazine, you'd make three times as much mag money, right? <laughs> a shoe magazine. That's exactly what he said. <laughs> And I said, well, Jerry, I don't want to write about shoes, and I don't know anything about shoes, so I couldn't anyway. I want to write about guns and hunting. He yeah. said, all right, you're hired. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's pretty obvious. You've got to have a passion for the subject. Yes. I'm, I'm sure there are people 
who could write about anything because they know how to write, you know, how to communicate. And that's definitely their base. Boy, if you can do it when your heart's in it, that comes through in your writing. People read it and the authenticity that you mentioned earlier, that all comes through when you're writing about something you know and love, you give it that extra touch and it just comes across as the genuine item. And that's what I've noticed about your writing. I noticed you years ago when you popped up, it's like, this guy is not just some wannabe. He's the real deal. I've still got you fooled, Ron. <laughs> well, that's the whole... Thank you. I appreciate that. That's an <laughs> honor to hear that from, from you. Well, it's, that's the whole program. I mean, it's, I think that's why when we were kids reading who we read, you recognized a certain authenticity in that writing, and, and you read more of it. And I think the editors see it as well. And, and when you're broadcasting like this or doing videos. But one of the mistakes that I see so many young people make now Obviously, the big draw is video these days. Yeah. You know, not so much the writing. The magazines are going away, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but the kids want to be doing videos on getting on TV. Mm-hmm. But what they do is they mimic precisely a show that they've already seen or two or three. And they all end up looking the same. And they use the same buzzwords and that they're going to hammer him and he's a shooter buck. And, and they've got the cliches all down. And, but that's, that's right. the problem. Yep. The whole production comes off like a cliche. Mm-hmm. And you lose that originality and that authenticity. What would you say, what would your advice be to young people who want to get into this in addition to what you've already told us, though, so that they avoid that cliche problem? Well, first, study cliches. We, when I was in the, the most influential writing class of my life happened in Rexburg, Idaho, under a professor named Jack Harrell. And we studied the three genres. And in there, there's a chapter on cliches. Uh-huh. And just like metaphors and similes and all those other things that I've forgotten most of what I learned about, right. cliches were, we, I mean, we dissected them. And he hammered home to us. That they were, uh, you know, the very essence of bad writing. And that comes through in your speech. I mean, whether you're putting a mm-hmm. smackdown on Big Nasty with all the trash <laughs> off his antlers. <laughs> exactly. Or whatever the case may be. You got to learn to make your, your voice your own, yeah. whether it's in writing or recording just pure audio, like I mostly do for my podcast, or video, like we're doing right now. Mm -hmm. You have to be authentic, and that can be very hard for, I'm going to both date myself now and insult our younger generation. Is that okay? You're allowed to do that. Okay. You've earned it. It's hard for our youth now because they're not as exposed to the diverse influences that you and I were growing up. When you've got two and a half functioning channels on your television uh-huh. and a library of 7,000 books ranging from Alexander Dumas to Louis L'Amour and everything in between. Well, you get exposed to a lot more and you learn to look for information rather than just being fed, fed. through your phone, right? Yeah. yeah. Good when you point. have to learn things without Google, <laughs> life changes, right? Yeah. You learn to research. You learn to branch out and find, you find things in your studies that you didn't expect to find. And you don't have algorithms feeding you what you're looking for because they've learned that's what you're looking for, right? Yep. So if you're a young person looking to get into some form of outdoor journalism, in addition to having those basic fundamental content producing traits, I would say uh, study 
a variety of outlets. So yeah, study writing, but writing, as you said, unfortunately is diminishing. And just a, a year or two ago, Outdoor Life and Field and Stream, two of our just most substantial outdoor magazines in the U.S. went pure digital, mm -hmm. right? They don't right. even take and print material anymore. So if you're wanting to see your name in a print magazine, that's getting harder and harder because there are fewer and fewer of them. And it's a very challenging competitive world. So look to other outlets as well. Become well-versed and versatile in what you're producing. Don't expect to get paid much for it. The first articles I sold, I think, ranged from 75 to 150 bucks. Uh, what year did you get started? Mm, those would have been late, late 90s, early 2000. Oh, and you at 75. See, when I started in 1976, the lowest pay I got was $75 for an article in Fur Fishing Game. There you go. Favorite yeah. magazines at the time. <clears throat> yeah. That was the low market, $75. Yeah. Fast forward a couple of decades or a quarter of a century, and you're still getting $75 at the low end. This is really a telling little number yeah. here for anybody who wants to make a living at this. It is. And these days, some guys will get, you know, they'll write a little web article. And if you're well-established and you have a name and you're really good at creating that content, you're going to make enough to make it worth doing, mm -hmm. right? But if you're just getting started and and those editors of the digital sites are just giving you a shot, they want to see what you can do. They want to see how reliable you are, how mm -hmm. consistently you mm -hmm. can produce good content. And they don't want to pay while they give you your shot. So I know of guys that have been offered like 40 bucks <laughs> for a little brief web review oh, or whatnot. Man. I mean, throwing it back, a friend of mine, a fellow editor, once popped into my office bursting with excitement in Illinois. And he said, I just found out that in the 1960s, Field and Stream once paid Robert Rourke $10,000 for an article. Oh, you could almost make a living at that, right? Just about. Now <laughs> you, you, <laughs> you line that with inflation. Yeah. These days you oh. could buy a brand spanking new tricked out diesel pickup for if somebody the actually value had that article. Sale. <laughs> that's yeah. right right or you could buy an old one like mine with three hundred fifty-six thousand miles on it well this brings up another essential trait to be a successful freelance writer especially the you've got to be a self-starter and disciplined enough to yes. do this too many guys will come out writing beautifully and you go oh my gosh this guy is the greatest writer i've ever read and you never see him again yeah because he's too busy I don't know what do they what do they do, but they just don't buckle down. They're waiting for the muses to strike or something, or they're maybe having another drink when they shouldn't be, uh, and they're playing the role of being a writer rather than doing the work yes. of being a writer mm -hmm. or someone who's doing videos, whatever, whatever quality production you're, you're doing. The point the point is that you are trying to make to send the message. You're making content that gets through to people, so you're communicating, which is yeah. what we'd say we're communicators, not just writers. That's why you've got to have that authenticity and the skills to communicate, whether it's in the written form or speaking or the video or the photography, but you're sending a message through all these different media. And that's the important thing. You mix your authenticity with hard work and sticking to it. I think you can be successful, but it is tough because you've got to crank out volume in addition to quality. Right? Yeah. 
quality, authenticity, and volume. And the worst part is a lot of people pay on publication. Oh, yeah. That's mm-hmm. less of a problem now that it's digital because sometimes your article go up the same week you submit it. But right. in the print world, you could go four to eight months before oh. you see a check for the work you're doing today. Yeah. And I think some of the, those great literary potentials fall by the wayside because they have little kids to feed and they mm-hmm. can't wait four months to get paid for that work. Yeah. So they go get a job. Well, a that, br- job. that yeah. brings up the old line about how do you make a million dollars as a gun writer? Start with two. Yes. That's a great <laughs> that A lot of guys did it that way. <laughs> You'll end up with a million and a few nice rifles. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you mentioned the, the artistic nature, you know, unfortunately many great literary personalities have that creative artistic nature that is not a self-starter self-driven yeah. personality. So I don't know if you knew this, but my father was an internationally known painter, an artist, right? Landscapes, exotic tropical landscapes. Really? He taught at a university for 38 years. Uh And so I grew up with flocks of his students around us all the time. I'd go on field trips with him when he took his students out and so forth. And I saw dozens and dozens, hundreds of students with great potential Mm -hmm. that never made it as an artist because being a painter is a lot like being a writer. Your professor will tell you, you got a one in a hundred chance and I'm being nice, right? Being generous with the numbers. Yes, yes. I I was told that. Now, my wife, Jenna Von Benedict, has become a successful artist, very successful contemporary wildlife painter. And I saw about six of my dad's students really make it. And I noticed in every case, What they had was that they were self-starters and they were driven. They were ambitious. Mm -hmm. They didn't go off and sit by the stream and dream, (laughs) right? Dream and dream, yeah. And make a little sketch and think that would make a great painting. I think I'll do that someday. Someday. They make a sketch. They go home and they put it on their easel and they get out the paints. And they spend eight or 10 hours a day in their studio or their kitchen, if that's where they have to paint. Right. Until it's done. And then they start on another one. They're not like, I've just fulfilled myself. Yes. I think it'll take three months off. Let's go write a poem. (laughs) Okay. So there's one other thing I got to say, though, about this this process of trying to become a successful money-making outdoor communicator. It becomes a job. Oh, yeah. Deadlines are a beast. (laughs) When I um, was working as a full-time editor, I had two very, very good writers. You know them both very well, but I'm not going to say their names, that couldn't make a deadline to save their lives. So many times I shuffled cover stories because they wouldn't make the deadline. Yeah. And when I transitioned to writing full time, I swore to myself that I'd never let it be my fault that I missed a deadline. If I couldn't get a product, like if you're supposed to write about X model of brand Y new Mm -hmm. binocular and you can't get a sample to write about, obviously. That's not your fault. You're going to miss that deadline. You talk to your editor and work it out. But if you have a shot at this, don't fall flat. Yeah. Follow through, produce the content, and don't let up on it. That becomes a job. You'll become jaded by the hobby that you once loved. And you have to find different channels. You'll go from handguns to shotguns. I got a big thing for nice shotguns right now. (laughs) And I'll always love vintage firearms and fine precision mountain rifles. Those just never seem to get old. But I bet if you went back through the past 15 years, I've probably written up multiple hundreds of polymer framed compact nine millimeter handguns. 
and I can write well about them. Do I like it? No. No, but you but I do my best because people want to know about it. Yeah. And it gets me paid. It pays yeah. the mortgage. Yep. And that's where the work part comes in. Right? Yeah. You don't want to necessarily do it, but you're going to. That's right. Ah, uh, th- this is really fascinating. We usually don't usually break off about this point, but I think we need to keep going because it's, it's not every day you get to talk to a vintage writer who's still active in writing up heart of your game. You're probably at the peak of your career right now. I hate to disillusion you, but it's, so it's all downhill from here. here. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Ron. <laughs> Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Now, Joseph, you've been making some excellent points about what it takes to be a successful communicator. One thing we haven't talked about, numbers. How many articles, when you were just writing articles as a freelancer, how many did you have to crank out in a year to make a reasonable living so that you had to you had to pay for your health care and you don't get time off. You don't get Christmas vacation paid. You know, you're just working. It's all on you. So you've got to do a certain volume at the rates they're paying. How many articles were you writing in a year at your peak? A lot. <laughs> so I think the most I've done in a year all in was about 120, 125 articles. Mm -hmm. Now that includes some short pieces like third page columns on a cartridge. Yeah. But the bulk of it is either a column, a proper column in a magazine, such as I do the vintage firearms column for shooting times, the Western hunting column for Peterson's hunting magazine, the hand loading column for rifle shooter magazine. Those call for about 1200 words in between three and half a dozen photographs, sometimes a chart or a spec list, you know, specifications, whatnot. But still, that's not the bulk of what I'm doing, right? Most of them are two to 3,000 word articles with a dozen to two dozen photographs, a bunch of test firing, often hand loading involved. Mm-hmm. And so I, I usually have between 80 and 100 on contract with the publishing house that primarily buys my work and now i would do another 20 or 30 additional assignments if one of the editors needed something and of course when they need something it's never long-sighted never foresighted it's not like in four months we have a cover story it's (laughs) like okay we had a cover story fall through like i was talking about we need a piece by thursday and it's monday (laughs) okay i don't need to sleep right right do this yesterday yeah (laughs) so what takes me longer than a lot of writers I know is the care I put into my photography. Uh-huh. I have um, a little pseudo studio in my basement where I've got a couple of good strobes, a high quality camera. It's not brand new, but I know how to run it real well. And I will spend an entire day doing a photo package for a feature article, especially if it's a cover photo. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then figure you've got something like, um, well, a cartridge story, such as the 6.5 PRC. When it came out, I wrung it out. I think I had something like 14 hand loads that I worked up and tested. So that's a couple of days worth of working up batches of hand loads. Another day, at least at the range, between letting your rifle cool, doing some cleaning, and making sure that you're not pushing yourself beyond your limits to fire consistent, accurate groups. I'll tell you, people think going to the range is always fun. When you're testing something that kicks a lot and you're doing, let's say, 180 to 300 rounds at 100 yards in a, in a day and you have to maintain your level of precision, it's brutal. It's not fun. Yeah, It is kind of nice being out in the sunshine and the fresh air. So I still 
you know, I, I, I can't help enjoying myself a little bit anyway, but it's not always fun and games, right? Yeah. And so you couple all that with the time that then you sit down at your, your desk with all your research, all your data. Maybe you've done your photos, maybe you haven't, but at some point you have to sit down and write. And then you have to revise and you have to be humble enough to throw out the crap in your article. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's yeah. what it is. And, and then you have to be ready to submit it to an editor who throws it back at you and says, this is crap. Yeah. <laughs> We're we need to pay you revision. anything for all that. Yep. <laughs> oh, Joseph, you've got story after story and you've, and they're authentic. As we said at the start of this, this gentleman knows what he's talking about because he's been there and done that. We've got a ring off on this one, Joseph, but this is so interesting. I'd love to have you back. You, I'd love to come back. Oh, that would be great. We'll do some more on this because there are so many more fields. Every time you say something, I think of four questions to ask you about it. We would be <laughs> here all week. So, hey, ladies and gentlemen, we want to thank you for listening. And if you're looking at this on YouTube's Ron Spomer Outdoors podcast channel, we appreciate that. Give us a thumbs up. Subscribe if you can. Check out Joseph Von Benedict at Backcountry Hunt. Backcountry Hunting Podcast. Yep, yeah. It's on all of the you know, Apple podcast and Spotify and Google, all those, you can find it there. Uh, someday I want to be just like Ron and have a YouTube channel too, but I'm ah. not there yet. Well, we'll get you there in a hurry. Hey, thanks for <laughs> watching folks. Remember, hunt honest and shoot straight. Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. <laughs> the destination for outdoor entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. Six, eight Western. Oh, I'm old there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.